This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How many Coloradans pay for health care would change dramatically if voters approve Amendment 69 this election. Taxes would go up to fund a new universal health care system called Colorado Care. It would largely replace private insurance. We're going to debate the measure with T.R. Reid, who leads the campaign to support it, and Cody Belsley, a consultant with the largest opposition group. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi, Ryan. I want to start with how this could affect patients. So right now, the healthcare system can be confusing. You know, there's getting referrals, making sure procedures and medications are covered, not knowing exactly how much you'll pay for an office visit or a trip to the emergency room. So, TR, I wonder how briefly this would change a healthcare consumer's life. Well, our proposition <clears throat> says this. It says, shall Coloradans pay $25 billion dollars? to create a healthcare system based in Colorado, run in Colorado, that covers everybody and gives you choice of any doctor, any chiropractor, any pediatrician. Basically, it's like Medicare for everybody in Colorado. That's what you get if you vote yes. If you vote no, then you're voting for this proposition. Shall Coloradans pay $36 billion to out-of-state insurance companies that dictate which doctors we can see, restrict the treatments and drugs your doctors can use, and raise our prices 20% a year because that's what they're doing. You reported that September 21st, 20% price increase next year. Um, In other words, if you vote no, you're voting for the insurance companies in the current system. And this vote gives us a chance to take a referendum on the insurance companies. If you're happy with what you've got, stick with it. If you'd like to see everybody covered, that's the fundamental difference. Oh, right. And a few of of the finer points. You would eliminate deductibles, correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, There wouldn't be co-pays for primary and preventive care. Right. Okay. And you can choose your own doctor under this plan? Yes. Any doctor, any hospital, any lab. So here's the deal. If you live in Colorado, you go to the doctor, you say, I live in Colorado, and she sends the bill to Colorado Care. Quite simple. And yet, Coloradans recently went through an overhaul of a different kind, the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare is supposed to address a lot of the same challenges that you want to address here. Still a relatively new law. Democrats are open to improving it, changing it. Why not continue to work down that path? Uh, There are two problems with Obamacare. It did expand coverage significantly, but it still leaves tens of millions of Americans with no health insurance 360,000 people in Colorado have no health insurance under Obamacare. And that number's been going up the last two years when things aren't getting better. And guess what, Ryan? Those people still get sick. And then they go to the emergency room for their doctor's office, the most expensive possible place to get health care. And since they're uninsured, we all pay for them. Under Colorado Care, everybody pays for health insurance and everybody's covered. All right. Cody, I'd like your response, but help us understand where you're coming from first. Uh, I I assume you are not opposed to the idea that everyone should have health insurance. That's not the platform on which you you come into the studio today. I'm certainly not opposed to the idea that everyone should have access to high quality, affordable health care services, whether or not that's paid for through an insurance model or not is yet to be debated. But, you know, I'm a um, I'm a progressive advocate. I've spent the last 12 years of my career working on access to health care, particularly for low income and underserved populations. And I think that the general goal and objective behind Amendment 69 is a good one. However, the details are critically important and critically flawed. Well, uh, give us a few examples. So they're basically... um, three buckets of concerns about Amendment 69. The first is that this would create 
a brand new, untested healthcare system, a never before done, universal, state run, government funded healthcare system. It takes um, a huge risk with something that's critically important to each of us as Coloradans, and that's our healthcare system. And it takes this brand new, never before tested system and it locks it into our state's constitution, making it virtually impossible to revise or change moving forward. While it locks into the Constitution a framework for this new system, it leaves critically important questions unanswered, questions about what our benefits will be, what our access to services will be, and ultimately what this new system will cost. Uh, And we should talk more about the unknown costs um, as we get further into this conversation. We will do so for sure. But the third piece that I think is really critically um, important is to note the $25 billion price tag associated with this. That's the that's the lead language of the amendment. And it is. And um, it would give Colorado the highest income tax rate in the country. It would levy, levy new taxes on all Coloradans uh, through both a payroll tax, but also an income tax on non-payroll income, meaning that senior citizens, members of our military, people will be paying into this health care system. They will be taxed for this new health care system, whether or not they use Colorado Care as their primary source of coverage. So from our perspective, Amendment 69, while um, underpinned by good intentions, is simply too risky, too uncertain, and too unaffordable for oh, Colorado. All right. Lots to unpack there. You you say this is untested. You say it's an experiment. Isn't that how lots of policy begins? Absolutely. The question, though, is what is the size and scope and scale of the risk that we're willing to take? Ryan, you referenced the Affordable Care Act earlier. Colorado has been on a path to health care reform that frankly predates the Affordable Care Act. We've been taking steps in this state for the last 10 years to improve our health care system. The question is not, do you endorse the current system? The question is, do you trash the current system in favor of something that's so risky and untested? Or do you continue to work to make the system that we have more efficient, more effective, and more affordable. I want to say about each of your backgrounds, Cody, you previously advised Democrat Bill Ritter on health policy when he was governor. And TR, you spent most of your career as a journalist with The Washington Post, and you've written several books and made PBS documentaries about healthcare around the world. So to get more of your perspective here, more of where you're coming from. How do, how do those travels, TR, inform your support for Amendment 69? You know, I got interested in healthcare because, as you know, I was a foreign correspondent. And we had to go to the doctor in other countries, and we got fine care and didn't have to wait very long. And the prices were minute, 10%, one-tenth, one-twentieth of what you'd pay in America. So as a reporter, I went around the world to see how they do it, and that's when I discovered the most important thing – All the other countries like us provide health care for everybody. There's only one industrialized democracy that doesn't. That's the United States. So I thought we ought to do that. We're not going to do it at a national level. Washington, D.C. can't fix our health care system. And yet there has been talk um, from Secretary Clinton, if she were to be elected president, and uh, some Democrats in the Senate, that they might pursue something like universal health care at the federal level. Well, Hillary says she's for it eventually. When does that mean? Uh, The current system that they support, you know, as I said, it expanded coverage, but it leaves hundreds of thousands of people in our state with no health insurance. We ought to cover everybody. I mean, if our neighbors are in pain or too sick to work, you know, a rich society ought to provide health care for them. And anyway, it costs less to do this because the health insurance companies who are paying for Cody's campaign 
are just too expensive. They add 20% to every doctor bill in administrative costs, and that's so important to them that they wrote it into Obamacare that they can charge 20% for administrative costs. Colorado Care's administrative costs, our whole our plan is based on a tested model called Medicare. Our administrative costs are going to be 4%. That's a huge saving, and that's a major reason why our plan, you know, they talk about the $25 million tax increase. That's true. They never mentioned that $36 billion we're paying now. Isn't it a bold thing to say administrative costs will be 4%? That's where the savings will come from. What do you base that, that number on? I base that on Medicare. So our plan is public payment of private providers. You keep the same doctor, the same chiropractor that you have now. That's the Medicare plan, and their administrative costs are 3.8%. Here's why. No advertising, no marketing. The private insurers are paying their CEOs 20 to $60 million a year. Colorado Care is not going to do anything like that. So our administrative costs are going to be just like Medicare's. That's our model. It's a tested model. So that's why we say 4%. All right. Let's do focus on the finances because that's critical here. The first line, as I said, of this amendment, as it appears on the ballot, is shall state taxes be increased $25 billion annually. And uh, indeed, the no campaign has hammered this point in ads. Sometimes too big can be bad. Take Amendment 69, for example. It would raise our taxes by $25 billion a year. That's the largest tax increase in state history. It would double the size of state government and create a single program that would be bigger than McDonald's, Starbucks, and Nike. That's the kind of big that just doesn't But Cody, is that a bit dishonest? Because it doesn't acknowledge that people would no longer pay deductibles and in many cases won't pay co-payments. Or health insurance premiums. So... I'm excited for the opportunity to talk about the details of the financing of this because I think it's critically important. The first thing to know is Colorado Care doesn't cover, doesn't become the primary source of health coverage for all Coloradans. Senior citizens will continue to receive Medicare. Members of the um, of the military, whether they're active or retired, will continue to get benefits through TRICARE or the VA. Mm. And nothing in Amendment 69 actually prohibits the continuation of private health insurance. So. 20-ish percent of Coloradans at a minimum would not be covered by this system, yet everyone is taxed for the system. Well, T.R., is that that true? So if you don't use Colorado Care, you have to pay for it in in taxes? Well, I'm on Medicare and the VA. That's where I get my health insurance. Um, There's a big exemption uh, for seniors, but above the exemption, you pay. And can I tell you why I like that? Uh, I, I don't have ki- – I'm old. I don't have kids in the public schools anymore and I pay the tax for public schools because I want to live in a state where every kid has an education and a chance to succeed. And in the same way, I will pay some tax, not too much, for Colorado Care because I want to live in a state where everybody who's sick – can get health care and has a chance to succeed. That seems fair to me. Well, well let's be clear about um, what the taxes do cover. The taxes cover all income, whether that's earned income through payroll or that's income on savings, um, investments, pensions, social security. Uh, Mr. Reed is right. There is a statutory $24,000 exemption for senior citizens. However, anything above $24,000 is subject to that 10% tax. I think the other thing that's um, really important to know is that $25 billion doesn't cover the full budget. Um, In addition to the $25 billion of tax revenue, Colorado Care seeks to take control of an estimated $11 billion of existing state 
and federal revenue that support health care programs. So the total cost, the total annual operating budget of Colorado Care is actually estimated to be $36 billion. And in fact, the Colorado Health Institute did uh, a forecast of Colorado Care, T.R. Reed, and it found that there might be as big as an $8 billion deficit within a decade. What, what do you say to that, that even with this sizable tax increase, as you say, $25 billion, it might not cover the expenses? Hey, it's not a tax increase. As you pointed out, they don't mention that we're paying $36 billion now in taxes to out-of-state companies. Well, let me rephrase that. In other words, uh, even with the funds yeah, that right, you, yeah. you establish for Colorado Care, the Colorado Health Institute says you're still going to be in a deficit. The Colorado Health Institute said we will save Coloradans billions of dollars. They said that. And then they said they think we fall short. We fall short one one hundredth of one percent in the first year and slightly more for years on end. And that's because we disagree with them on how much federal money we're going to get. As Cody said, the federal government is going to pour billions of dollars into this because they're encouraging states to do what we do. Currently, we get $13 billion a year from the federal government for health care. They say the federal government will cut that. We say, no, they're not going to cut it. But even if they do, let's say their numbers are right. They say after eight or 10 years, we'll have to raise the tax. So here's your choice, Ryan. You can continue paying 20% increases to the out-of-state insurance companies every year for 10 years, or maybe in seven or eight years, we'll have to ask the voters of Colorado to raise the tax. If they like Colorado Care, they'll do it. If they don't, fine, they won't, and we can go back to the tender mercies of the out-of-state insurance companies. Cody? So I I think a couple of things that are important to note here. The Colorado Health Institute did a great analysis that looked at the best-case scenario, the worst-case scenario, and then the most likely scenario. I think what's important to note, Ryan, is that the numbers that you quote, the $8 billion deficit 10 years out, is actually their most likely scenario, not their worst-case scenario. I think what's critical about Colorado Care is the fact that there are so many unknowns. It's not it, the costs are a significant unknown and an important topic, but I think what's equally important is to recognize we don't actually know what we get for the healthcare dollars that we're spending. Out of 12 pages of text, there are only 11 lines that describe what the benefits are under Colorado Care. They're big categories of things like inpatient hospitalization and prescription drugs and end-of-life care, but they provide absolutely no detail about what the specific benefit levels are, what the specific drugs are. And so it's very difficult for people to look at that and to know whether what they'll get for their tax dollar is is worth it. So T.R. Reid, if if I'm listening to this and I'm on, I don't know, finasteride or Coumadin or something like that, and and I, I look at this and I say, that drug doesn't appear in the amendment, what... What's going to be covered? How do you answer that? You're much better off with Colorado Care. This is, as you mentioned, they talk about the $25 billion, but not the $36 billion we're paying now. But to the specifics yeah. of coverage. And they talk about risk. The risk is with the private insurers because their plans say we can change terms at any time. Get with this. With Colorado Care, under federal law, we're required to provide at least as good coverage as a silver plan. That's the mid-level plan in Obamacare. This is the only plan other than Medicare that will be required by law to guarantee its benefits. So there's much less risk. And again, I say compared to what? You call this risky that we have to meet, comply with federal law? It's riskier to go with private insurance that say right in their plan. We can change the terms at any time. We're going to take a break. There's much more to say. And in fact, this creates something of a new election 
in Colorado that would have to happen because members of Colorado Care would have to make decisions. And we'll talk about that aspect of this and also where your campaign's money is coming from. We are debating Amendment 69 on the ballot. Colorado Care is how you may know it. Back in just a moment on CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are debating today Amendment 69 on your fall ballot. This is to create Colorado Care, a taxpayer-funded universal health plan. And we're joined by a supporter of this, T.R. Reed, uh, with Colorado Care, and Cody Belsley with Coloradans for Coloradans, which is a major opposition group. And I, I want to focus a little bit on how Colorado Care lives alongside Medicaid, and Medicare, these existing programs. Um, I know that, Cody, you have some concerns in that regard. So this is a, a not a true single-payer proposal or a true universal proposal in the sense that nearly 20 percent of Coloradans at a minimum will be excluded from coverage yet taxed for this new system. Um, seniors who are Medicare eligible will continue to receive their Medicare coverage but will pay into this new system. And TR has said before the break he thinks that's a good thing that everyone is invested. But but keep going. I, I, I think the other thing that's important to note is that um, through an uncertain federal waiver pro- process, um, this new system would take over Medicaid um, and would redirect federal and state funding sources um, to to this new entity that exists outside the checks and balances of our state government, not accountable to the governor, not accountable to the state legislature, and will take responsibility um, without accountability. What do you think that could mean for Medicaid patients? What's your fear? Well, I think and this is, like this so is many the poor, this is children. Absolutely. I, mean, I think like so many aspects of Amendment 69, we simply don't know what this will look like. Um, there are two federal waivers that would be required to implement Amendment 69. And the reality is um, these are large and complex negotiations that would be taking place between this new entity, Colorado Care, and a new administration. Regardless of who wins the election in November, we know that there will be new leadership at the Department of Health and Human Services. We yeah, don't know how long it will take to navigate that process. We don't know how, um, whether or not it's even possible. So address these concerns about Medicaid in particular, T.R. Reed, because I understand one concern is that low-income individuals might have to shell out money ahead of time, then be reimbursed for Medicaid. Is that possible? No. Under federal law, you can't charge somebody under the Medicaid level for health insurance, so we can't charge them. Uh, Here's the deal. We cover – Colorado Care will cover everybody up to age 65 and then seniors stay on Medicare. Uh, Veterans like me can stay on the VA if they want to or use Colorado Care. As Cody said, we have to go to Medicaid and prove that we have a system that works. If they don't accept that, then the system will never start. So that's a pretty good safeguard. But here's the best thing. We're going to pay the same rate for everybody to the doctor so that finally, under Colorado Care, the poor kid's asthma attack and the rich kid's asthma attack will be treated exactly the same. The doctor will get the same money for treating them. We think that's more American than the system we have now. Where because the right now, doctors are, are reimbursed at a different rate Much if you've got private for, insurance or if you've got 
government-backed uh, insurance. Yeah, don't you think we ought to pay the doctor the same for the poor kid's earache as the rich kid's earache? That's our principle. So, but so, is it? Let me let me just uh, push back on that. Is it yeah. safe to assume that whatever that amount will be is yeah. enough to keep doctors interested and in the state and and hospitals for that matter in business? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at contributions, you're going to talk about contributions later. Most of the op- opponents' money, about ninety-eight percent, comes from out-of-state insurance companies. Hundreds and hundreds of doctors, hundreds of nurses and other practitioners have contributed to our campaign. And you know why, Ryan? Doctors like the fact that everybody finally will have health insurance. They like the fact that everyone who walks in the door will be insured because but all But will doc- they be amply paid? It's one thing to support the idea of that, and it's another thing to say... Well, certainly anybody bill. who's treating Medicaid will be because they're going to get much more... In our budget plan, in our business plan, we estimated that we would pay providers 133 to 155% of what Medicare pays. And I have had some doctors say, oh, my God, I can't get away with that. But most doctors say that's better than the contracts they have with private insurers. Cody? So that is completely inconsistent with what the Colorado Medical Society, the largest professional association of Colorado's doctors, say. They've actually taken a position opposed to Amendment 69 because they're very concerned that um, this new system, the business plan that Mr. Reed references, which has been debunked by independent experts at the Colorado Health Institute, won't be, the revenue won't be adequate to ensure reimbursement levels that will guarantee access to care. I think whether it's um, the uncertainties of of reimbursement levels and therefore the impact on access to care or the uncertainties about benefits or the uncertainties about long-term costs, the reality is Mr. Reed and the proponents have a vision for what this will look like, but we have no assurance that the system or the plan will play out the way they hope it will. I uh, I applaud their good intentions, but for $25 billion, there's simply too much at stake for Coloradans to vote yes on Amendment 69. T.R. Reid, Vermont, of course, tried to go down this path. And it's a smaller state. It's a more homogenous state, which presumably could make uh, unveiling something like this a bit easier. Why would it work in Colorado when Vermont ran into two, two issues? They screwed it up. They had a good plan designed by a guy at Harvard, and then it went to their legislature. And guess what? Their legislature larded it up with everything any doctor wanted to do. They had Botox in there. And they ended up, it was so expensive, and they only have 620,000 people. It's really not a big enough insurance pool to make this work. They ended up with a tax of 11.5%. Our tax on the worker is 3.3%. We're a bigger insurance pool, and I think this is a feature, not a bug. We don't let the legislature mess around with this. It's going to be run by a board of people elected by Coloradans, run by Colorado citizens, not like the private insurance companies. And the legislature can't step in and mess it up. To me, that's a good thing. And in fact, you have to create something of a new election system so that all of these Coloradans who'd be a part of Colorado Care can make decisions as members of the system. Um, Does that get pretty harried, do you think? I don't think so. I mean, a lot of cooperatives, all the IREAs, et cetera, REI, a lot of cooperatives have elections for their board. What this says is there's seven health care districts. You elect three members, your neighbors from each of the districts. And again, I say compared to what? The decisions on health care today are made by executives in Minnesota, Indiana, Connecticut. There's not a single Coloradan 
on those boards. Colorado Care will be run by all Coloradans elected by Coloradans. So, Cody? so let's be really clear. This is not a co-op. What is being created is a political subdivision of the state that will operate by a totally different set of rules than our existing state government entities. Outside the purview and control of the governor or the legislature, 21 elected politicians will be responsible for making critically important decisions about your health care benefits, about what your doctors and hospitals get paid, and ultimately about what you pay in taxes to fund this new health care system. The but you only presumably have a vote. You have a vote in, in their decisions. Members, you? members of Colorado Care have a vote. And I want to be very clear. Yeah, the definition, everybody. no, the definition of who is eligible to vote in a Colorado Care election does not match the definition of who is eligible to vote in a typical Colorado election. This is the reason why they'll need to maintain a separate voter file and implement their own elections process outside the control of the Secretary of State and the county commissioners. We have no guarantee that these elections will be held in a, in a manner or a fashion that we're used to in terms of the integrity and transparency of these elections. Everybody who pays the tax gets to vote. That seems fair to me. And so not necessarily those drawing benefits. Because, again, you can be paying into this and not yeah, drawing benefits. Everybody who's covered gets to vote. Right. Everybody in Colorado gets to vote. So I want to say that many conservatives also oppose Colorado Care, in part because they see it as a major government program. We talked with Americans for Prosperity's Colorado director, Michael Fields. He acknowledged that some people are happy today with Medicare. But government also runs Medicaid, runs the VA system, um, and it doesn't have a great track record uh, on those. And so I think, yeah, they're going to push towards calling it, you know, Medicare for all. But I think when you look at it, if doctors only had the choice to serve people with Medicare, Medicaid, they wouldn't really be in business, a lot of them. And so I think you're going to see a lot of doctors leave the state. I think you're going to see a lot of businesses not come here, not only because of the tax hike, but because of the quality of care that you would get here uh, versus other places. To employers in particular, they'd pay, I think, about 6.7%. Yes, Is that right, right Tiare? Yeah. What are you hearing from employers? Well, according to the Colorado Business Group on Health, employers today who provide health care are paying about 12% of payroll for health insurance. So we have hundreds of employers around the state who have joined business for Colorado Care because they figured out, for example, the head of, uh, of Bojo's Pizza, you know that chain? No. He's got hundreds Colorado of Pizza. Yeah, he call, he's got hundreds of uh, employees, and he said, you know, his accountant told him he's paying 13% now for health insurance. He'll get better coverage for half that price he signed up. So for most employers, this is going to be a good deal. And to the point that we heard Michael Fields at least allude to, and Cody, uh, I think, make uh, more clearly, that there is an, a government-run aspect to this, a lack of popular control in it. What do you say? Well, there's much more popular control because it's run by a board of people elected in Colorado. Currently, health care decisions are made by companies in Minnetonka, Minnesota, Bloomfield, Connecticut. We have no control over them. I want to respond to the small business piece or, or the business impact piece because I think it's critically important. We know that Colorado is a small business state. More than 80 percent of our companies are run by entrepreneurs and innovators who are creating jobs in Colorado. We know that this small business um, community will be 
doubly impacted by Colorado Care because they're responsible not just for the payroll tax, but for the non-payroll tax on their business income. If they if their business is set up as an LLC, an LLP, a partnership, or a sole proprietorship, so the tax burden um, is particularly uh, onerous on our smallest of businesses, but our, again, our aren't entrepreneurs. Aren't you focusing on the the front and not the back? That is to say, yes, but also isn't aren't there savings to be had because to they're they're not providing insurance as they are today. Some small businesses are providing insurances today and will see an offset in the tax increase. However, we don't know what they will get for the tax dollars they're paying because there are so many uncertainties about what the benefits are, what the access to care will look like. And we also don't know what the long-term costs of implementing Colorado Care will be. Well, the $25 we know billion get... dollar tax increase is, is a starting point. And if you believe the Colorado Health Institute's independent analysis, you know that this tax increase will be insufficient to meet the ongoing costs. And so this is a starting point for the cost of Colorado Care, not an end point. T.R. Reed, I want you to address something that I'm hearing as a theme from Cody Belsley, which is uncertainty. And so if Coloradans look at this ballot measure and they go, gosh, there, there, maybe there's a lot of good stuff here, but there are also a lot of unanswered questions. What, what do you say to them? Again, I say compared to what? Currently, we get our health insurance from out-of-state companies. We have zero control over them. All their plans say we can change the terms at any time. With Colorado Care, we are required by federal law to meet at least the needs of a silver plan under Obamacare, that's a guarantee. It's less risk. But you are putting this into the state constitution. And if there's one thing we know about state constitutional amendments, it's that they're a bit brittle. Well, it it can't get into the constitution unless people vote for it, right? So if people then want to change it, they'll vote for that. I I don't see the difference. Uh, You know, if, if people want to have everybody covered for less cost, They'll vote for it. If they then want to change something in it, they'll vote for it. I, I have to say, I think it's it's really um, irresponsible to be so cavalier in talking about changing the state's constitution. Anyone who's lived in Colorado for any amount of time knows about Tabor Amendment 23, the Gallagher Amendment. Regardless of what you think of the content of those policies, almost all Coloradans agree that the that putting large and complex policies into our state's constitution has created real challenges from a budgeting and governing perspective. And Amendment 69 would only serve to further complicate an already full and complicated constitution. All right. Cody Belsley, you've got a broad coalition, and yet much of the money you've raised comes from a few sources. Your campaign has about $4 million behind it, a million from Anthem, based in Ohio, and at least half a million from Kaiser Permanente in California. Uh, Colorado Care would no doubt hurt insurance companies, so they'd have a financial stake in defeating it. Are Colorado voters being manipulated into opposing it by companies with a financial stake in the outcome? Not at all. Um, We have no reason to hide who our donors are. We have complied with every um, transparency measure required by the state, and we appreciate the financial contributions, not just from the companies who have supported us, but the more than 55% of our contributions have come in small dollar increments of $100 or less from Coloradans like you and me, Ryan, who understand the risks of Amendment 69 and who don't want to see I've not contributed. Well, excuse me. Okay. I apologize, but everyday Coloradans um, who have made small dollar contributions to our campaign because they understand the risks of of this proposal. I think what's most important to look at not is not just um, who has contributed to the campaign, but who's taken a formal position. More than 1,700 Coloradans and 
small businesses and organizations who we know and trust, organizations like the Colorado Medical Society, Children's Hospital Colorado, the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, have come out against Amendment 69 because they know the risks that it poses to our health care system and our economy. So, TR, Colorado Care, yes, has much less money in the bank. You do have the support of Senator Bernie Sanders, who is popular among Democrats who caucused in Colorado. Uh, He hopes Colorado will create a model that could spread across the country. Uh, But to wrap up, um, the governor, for instance, the the state's chief executive has has come out opposed to Colorado care. What does that tell us about this? Uh, You know, we're not a partisan effort. We are appealing to the people of Colorado. Uh, As for funding, 98 percent of the other side's money comes from out-of-state insurance companies. They have a great deal going. They don't want competition from an in-state company. But, But to this idea that the state's chief executive says, don't go down this path, voters. I think there are two things going on there. The insurance companies hired lobbyists who said to the state legislature, if you'll come out against universal health care, we'll take care of your campaign coffers. I think that is a factor. And the other thing is, I think politicians are afraid of being accused of socialized medicine. This is not socialized medicine. It's the same private doctor, hospital, lab you use now. But whenever you try to change things, the insurance companies say, oh, my God, socialized medicine, because they want to keep their monopoly. And if you vote no, you're letting them do it. T.R., I want to be very clear on the accusation you're making there. Are you saying that the governor is making that decision based on his funders? Because we're going to have to check that. No, I don't know who's giving money to the funders. I do know because a friend of mine was in the meeting that a lobbyist said to the legislators, if you'll come out against this universal health care plan, we'll help you out. I think you should look into that, Ryan. I think the reality is many people, uh, many elected officials from all sides of the political spectrum have looked at this policy, have understood the risks that it poses to Colorado and have come out against it because of the uncertainty in the proposal, the details of the policy, not because they disagree necessarily with the concept or the idea, but the details of Amendment 69 are deeply concerning to people of all st- political stripes. You heard their TRE longtime journalist and author who now leads the campaign for Amendment 69 on Colorado's ballot. It would establish a new taxpayer-funded insurance program for all. We also heard from Cody Belsley, a consultant with the No campaign called Coloradans for Coloradans. You can hear our other ballot measure debates, medically assisted death, for instance, and minimum wage at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The fight between the oil and gas industry and environmental groups has entered a new arena. They are taking sides on a ballot measure this year that would make it harder to amend the state constitution through citizen initiative. CPR's energy and environment reporter Grace Hood talked about this with Joanne Allen. We're going to talk about how this relates to fracking regulations in a minute. But first, what would Amendment 71 do? 
proponents of this campaign, uh, its tagline is raise the bar, protect our Constitution, pretty much want to add two requirements for groups seeking to get constitutional amendments in front of voters. The first change is where signatures are gathered. So under this proposed change, if uh, signatures are collected for ballot issues, proponents would have to go to all 35 of the state's Senate districts and get a certain number of signatures in each of those districts. The second change is that um, if a proposed ballot issue were to go in front of voters, uh, you would need to get 55 percent approval rather than just the simple majority now. So, you know, here's where fracking comes in. Local control advocates and environmental groups failed to get two issues in front of voters this year. Pretty much they didn't get enough signatures. And so they're really critical of 71. They don't want it to be any harder to get something onto the ballot. And the oil and gas industry is advocating in favor of Amendment 71. The oil and gas group Protect Colorado gave a million dollars to this campaign last month. They're also sending workers into the field to canvas on this issue. Why? Yeah, exactly. Protect Colorado is an issue committee that was founded to oppose those two failed ballot issues I mentioned over fracking. I spoke with Karen Crummy. She's a spokeswoman for Protect Colorado. And she said her group did an analysis of signatures gathered for um, number 78. This was a setback issue related to fracking. And they found that nearly three-fourths of signatures gathered came from Laramie Boulder in Denver counties. Weld County, Garfield County, you know, the biggest oil and natural gas producers in the state. You know, I'm not even sure if, if any of the signatures came from there. So the argument from the oil and gas industry is that people from oil producing parts of the state, really all around the state, should be reflected in signatures that are turned in to get something in front of voters on a ballot issue. Environmental groups entered this debate last week to oppose Amendment 71. What are they saying? Yes for Health and Safety over fracking vowed last week to defeat this ballot issue. The environmental group Conservation Colorado also opposed it. And I talked with Conservation Colorado's Jessica Goad on this issue, and she says it's really about access for environmental groups and cost. She says it'll be a lot more expensive to get grassroots issues on the ballot. But corporations, industries, and special interests who might run anti-environment or anti-conservation initiatives would be easily able to pay to play and to get their message on the ballot. And you already saw that with significant outspending between oil and gas and environmental groups on these failed fracking ballot issues. Goad says if 71 passes, it'll make it even harder for groups like hers to use one of the only remaining avenues to restrict fracking. Now, Grace, the amendment has a much larger debate going on now between supporters and detractors. How do oil and gas companies and environmentalists we've been talking to fit into that? I took this question to political strategist Rick Ritter. He's with RBI Strategies and Research. He isn't working on this ballot issue, but he has worked on other campaigns in the past. And he says, you know, this really isn't the main event. This is part of the sideshow. There's a long list of groups that say this measure will help or hurt the process. But I think what's really interesting about this debate, you know, which has been very abstract over Amendment 71, is that when you get into the oil and gas groups and environmentalists and what they're saying, it really does give us a real world example of what this policy would look like if voters approve it. That is CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood speaking with Joanne Allen about Amendment 71 on the November ballot, the so-called raise-the-bar measure. And we're going to debate that measure on Colorado Matters next week.
Coming up, the next big thing in craft alcohol is what the pilgrims drank. This is Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Pilgrims drank it like water. Prohibition killed it. And now artisanal hard cider, a boozy cousin of apple juice, is experiencing a revival. Cideries are popping up across Colorado to meet the demand for this farm-to-table beverage. It is cider season, as apple harvest is underway, and ciders may make a cameo at this weekend's Great American Beer Fest in Denver. Brad Page and Jay Kenny are two of Colorado's ciderpreneurs, if I can use that term. Can I use that term, guys? I've never heard that term, but that's fine. <laughs> All right. We've coined it today. Jay, you're the most recent Denver ciderpreneur. Uh, your business is Clear Fork Cider. Can a cider be complex, like a, a beer or a wine? Absolutely. If if you start with fruit that is um, a mix of bitter sharp, bitter sweet, dessert apples, high in tannins, and then you blend it, you end up with something that is uh, unbelievably good and complex. All right. So it's not just any apple that makes cider? Not just any apple. I mean, you can make cider from any apple, but if you want to make something that, that makes people go, wow, I've never had cider that tasted like that then you need to source apples from a lot of different places. And are some of those grown in Colorado? Some of them are, not as many as we would like. And is that something you hope to change? Yes. Okay. Is cider always made from apples, just to be clear? No. No. It's made from pears. It's made from any fruit that you could ferment. Well, the government defines cider as apples only, so pears, perry. And uh, we just had the law changed on the federal level. Um, any other fruit in an apple or pear fermented beverage is not considered cider. So. Oh, right. Okay. So there's this sort of legal definition right. and then the, I guess, working definition. Uh, it's treated like wine. Is that correct? Yeah. We're, we're regulated as wineries. So we're licensed as wineries. And that's in part because cider is not brewed. It's not heated. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fruit fermentation. So it falls under wine. So Sean Larson has been making cider at Big B's in Hotchkiss for six years, and he describes people's reactions in their cider tasting room. You see a lot of surprise in the eyes of the people that either A, say things like, I don't like cider, or I've never had cider before, or, you know, it's been like 25 years and the stuff that I drank was really super sweet. And then you start them off in your tasting room with the driest cider you make, and you hear it quite often, and you, you hear people say, I didn't know cider could taste that way. Yeah, Brad, I think of cider as cloying, as cloyingly sweet. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's uh, because the people that were making cider commercially were sort of in a market that didn't know what to make of cider. So they were making it like wine coolers, and that sort of set the the standard, unfortunately, although Woodchuck always comes to mind, and those guys sort of single-handedly kept the industry alive, although... Uh, the craft movement is really trying to emphasize the the non-cloying side of of the beverage. So uh, there are a lot of apple flavors that aren't sweet, and, and once you ferment the sugar out of anything, it doesn't. It's not sweet. Uh, our fermentations go to zero. They're they're bone dry. You're with Colorado Cider Company, and um, your answer there made me think that to some extent the the cider industry was on a was flatlining for a time. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think the craft beer movement became so strong in the United States that uh, there really wasn't that much room for other craft beverages. Then you started seeing the distilleries come in and cider was the logical next thing. So 
Uh, when I decided to get back in the business in 2009, um, I was just confident that it was going to be the next thing because you had these people buying uh, well-made, um, higher-priced craft beers and, and trying spirits, and cider was the logical thing. That is to say, the interest in alcohol all around sort of is the tide that raises all boats. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think people um, just in general are looking beyond sort of the commodity wonder bread uh, offerings out there. <laughs> and then you know, the beer mar- the beer market was the exact same way. I mean, back when craft beer started in Colorado in, in the late 80s, uh, Boulder beer was around, but it was very small. And um, people were starting to see what flavors there were from roasted malts and hops. And although if you look back now, the hopping rates that were used back then are just minuscule. They wouldn't even be considered uh, hoppy beers now. So, To what extent is this related, do you think, to the local food movement too or farm to table? And, and Jay, you've talked about the fact that not all apples can be locally sourced, but do you think there's a that, that locavore element to this? I think people are interested in knowing where their beverage or their food or their fruit came from. And I think that part of the the, the market that's there is that if you can say, look, we made this uh, five miles from here or 10 miles from here and the apples came from Peonia or Hotchkiss or Crawford or Cortez, yeah. that, that interests people. They like that. So let's talk about the size of the industry, how quickly it's growing in Colorado in particular and contrast that with the national interest if there is uh, in cider. Um, I mean it's growing very fast here. We're not um, as developed as – Hot spots like the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, which are sort of leaders in craft beer as well. And, and leaders in apples too. Yeah, and, and Michigan <laughs> and New York for the same reason. Those are apple areas. So I, uh, I do think we will be as uh, consumer-oriented cider drinkers in Colorado as anywhere in the country eventually, just like we have in beer. We don't grow a whole lot of hops, but we sure make a lot of good hoppy beers. Yeah. So. Jay, anything you'd add? I mean, you're well, you're newer into this as, as an entrepreneur. What I would add is that 10 years ago, there were 223,000 gallons of hard cider consumed in Colorado. Okay, 223,000? Gallons. And then last year, there were 1.4 million gallons of hard cider consumed. I see. A so, lot of growth on the consumer huge side. Huge growth. Cider's got such an interesting history. I mean, this notion that it goes back to the pilgrims. Why would the pilgrims have had it? Well, if you think about where they were and what sort of sugar could be grown, um, they weren't planting barley. And grapes, um, they were all from England and uh, sort of northern European to begin with. Apples grew well that came from their their home countries and they found that uh, that was an easy fermentable. I think people think they planted apple trees to eat, but that's not why they were planting apple trees. And New England was a very <laughs> hospitable place for apple trees to grow. They were planting apple trees to drink. Yes. Say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Puritan myth. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, prohibition must have done a number on cider. It did a it did a huge number. They um, they stopped drinking it. They cut down the trees, and it became a, wait. A, they cut down apple they trees. Cut down apple trees in prohibit an, an, an unwitting victim of prohibition. Yes, it, mostly the apples that were not good for eating, but good for cider. So if uh, you had a what the English refer to as spitters, um, there wasn't a market to eat those apples because they're only good for making alcohol. So those. Those certain varieties were really lost. Is it hard to make cider? It's hard to make good cider. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just just briefly, take us through the process because, again, it's not a brewing. No. So the process is to uh, pick fruit, collect it, 
make sure it's clean, uh, crush it, uh, ferment it, filter it, uh, and then adulterate it if you're going to adulterate it. I mean, it changed the flavor in some fashion, and and then bottle it and sell it. Okay. Well, that was a, a very cursory introduction. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I mean, most it's people, when we give show. tours, uh, the, the, the thing we say is because there's so many breweries in Denver and in Colorado in general that we don't have a brew house, so we don't heat up. Uh, there's no wort, there's no kettle, so it's a winemaking process. So we start with, with juice, and that's the source of the sugar for fermentation. And after the fermenter, there's a lot of similarities, although dealing with fruit juice as opposed to uh, sugar from um, a mash, mash malt is a whole different thing. But uh, and are, are there barrels? Um, well, we yeah we barrel age some things. I mean, so uh, the big difference in beer and cider. From a consumer standpoint, I guess, and a making standpoint is uh, all the sugars in cider are fermentable. So in beer, you always have a little residual sugar left over from the malt sugar that doesn't ferment. So um, if we have any residual sweetness in the cider, you just got to make sure there's no yeast because otherwise it'll re-ferment in the bottle. Yeah. And if I drink a cider, is it all one kind of apple or are there blends in a way that, that you know, wine can be? Usually what you're drinking is a blend. There oh. are single variety ciders, uh, some of which are quite good, uh, but they're they're hard to find, and the market is not quite there yet in terms of its development. And I think that's a strength. Uh, I've made the argument for a few years that um, uh, the fact that there's no equivalent of a Cabernet in the cider world is a strength for us in the long run because people will value the blends and the flavors that come from these great apples. You heard from Jenny, Jay Kenny, pardon me, CEO of Clear Fork Cider and Brad Page, co-owner with his wife Kathy of the Colorado Cider Company. These Denver cideries are part of a really exploding hard cider market done in an artisanal way in Colorado. We've done this sober, by the way. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. (laughs) 